That was our trip, and it was great. So while on that trip, um, just uh, uh, Lord putting some things on my heart um, about doing life together. And um, I, I'm going to do something that's pretty, pretty atypical of our church, and that's to do a topical study. The gasps aren't as um, accent or accentuated as it was in the morning. Like, they couldn't, oh, you're topical, no way, you're going to hell. Um, so we are, and so we're, and we're, we're just going to do a series about doing life together. And um, the, the first topic that uh, was on my heart is community. And uh, reason being is, is, uh, is when we were in Kenya, um, here you have this uh, community of 300 some odd uh, kids, most of them orphans, um, and they're lumped together. And so um, when the, the director of Rohi asked me to teach one time, um, that's, that's what was on my heart. And so that's what I taught about. And I couldn't believe that I didn't use notes. Um, and they said that I was like more Pentecostal. Um, so it was an out of body experience. Um, cause that's definitely not me. And, uh, and then there was another time that the topic was, uh, uh, with, within doing life together and they asked me to teach again. And so I did and no notes again. So I'm, I'm thinking that maybe I don't need notes. No, I really, I really do. My wife has made me promise that I always use notes because I always say things I shouldn't say without them. So we're going to use notes. Um, as many of you know, Regen has an internship program and we handpick uh, some people for this internship program. We, we, we pray all year for it, actually. So this year I'm praying about next year's um, internship cohort. And two of the guys that uh, we've invited have said yes, and we're still waiting for, I think, five of them to reply. And so for an entire year after they say yes, which it starts in the fall, we pour our time, our energy, our resources into their lives. And that's not just me. It's the staff. It's, it's different ministry leaders, um, the, the people here. It's a, it's a huge commitment for the church. It's a huge commitment for interns. It's a huge commitment for me. And um, some of you don't even really know what they do. Or I'll, I'll give you a brief rundown. They're expected to outline the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Not just read it. They're supposed to outline it. And if they misbehave, the Apocrypha, too. Um, and so and then they get on this reading program. That uh, just books that have really influenced my life or influenced different staff people's life. And so it averages about to one book a month. And then they take three classes a quarter uh, from our school of ministry. And then they serve at the church and they kind of make themselves available to do whatever needs to be done at the church. So um, in essence, a slave. So they're a slave to the church. And so we, we came back from doing this mission trip to Nakuru, Kenya last week. And it was this two weeks of concentrated time of serving together. So we start out in SFO at six o'clock in the morning. We transfer to Detroit four hours later. We transfer to in Amsterdam eight hours later and then to Nairobi eight hours later. And that's not including how long the layovers were. So then we live life together for, for two weeks and we do ministry together for two solid weeks. And I already know these guys pretty well. 
um, as I've, I've invested a fair amount of time into their lives already. And, and I, I know to expect certain things from them because they graduated college about a year ago. So one of the things I know is, is that they will be late. I know that. I know that they will drink Coke for breakfast. I know that. And they will eat an amazing amount of processed foods. I know these things. So, so you're like, well, you know so much about them. Why do you have to do this? Um, do you know why I have to do this with them? How, why I have to invest this time into them, um, doing this mission trip with them? And it's not because it's convenient or because it's easy. Because it's not. I have a, a three-year-old at home and I have a one-year-old at home. Um, it's not easy leaving my family. Uh, it's not convenient for my wife at all. And it's not about finances because it's actually quite expensive to do a mission trip. And the simple reason is it's because um, of who I get to be with for two weeks straight, 24-7. It's because of who I was with in the cars, in the planes, in the vans, in the churches, in the schools, in the orphanages, all that time together. And it's because when you travel with people several thousands of miles together, over half of the world in, in span, um, you start to have these memorable moments. You, you get these memories that you build and you share with, with one another. And then in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And it's right before Jesus begins uh, the trip that will take him to the cross. So you notice that the first thing Jesus does is he, he forms a little community. He puts together a group of uh, a few ordinary guys like Andrew, like uh, Peter, like James, like John. And Jesus tells them to, to hop on a plane and take a trip with him. And Jesus really didn't have to do this because he was perfectly capable of taking that trip all by himself. It's not that he needed someone to help him teach better or that he lacked uh, power to do healing. Um, there's something we need to understand about Jesus. Community was his plan for how to change the world. That was Jesus' plan. And when he left the earth after three years of intense ministry, he didn't leave behind a large inheritance. He, he didn't leave behind a, a corporate infrastructure for, for his movement, uh, for things to be passed on. Um, he didn't leave a financial plan. He left no assets. He didn't leave like an influence or, or a network or, or any of those things that we think are crucial for an organization or a movement to, to move forward. All he left behind was this small group that he heavily invested into. And that, that was it. Twelve ordinary people. And, and then a bigger circle of, of friends and their friends and acquaintances. But really, you know, this group of guys. And, and look at what happened 2,000 years later. And we're here because of what happened through them. And how serious do you think Jesus is about community? How often did Jesus approach someone and say, I want you to follow me. Uh, I'm putting together this small group of disciples and, and I want you to be one of them. Um, I know you're, you're busy and all, but, uh, you know, you don't really have the time to be part of a small group. I understand. And I know that some of the current disciples are a pain in the neck. And Peter talks too much and Thomas is pretty negative and Judas is like, um, he'll stab you in the back. And um, they're not normal like you and I. And so you can just follow me on your own. 
You know, just on your own and you can skip the community part. Just just make sure you read the text and make sure you attend some lectures and and you can do that discipleship thing like, you know, like as a self-study plan. How often does Jesus offer that, make that available to somebody? Never, never. At the beginning of his ministry, through the, the beginning of the passion, Jesus first step was to establish community. And throughout his whole ministry, he modeled and taught on the nature of life in this new kind of community. And on the last night of his life, he prayed for the unity for his community, of his community. He said that the credibility of his entire ministry and mission rested on oneness, on being united. And before he ascended, his final words to his friends can be found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, extend my community. Go to all the world and grow my community. I'll be with you. Go to all the world. And if we were to do a study on the fruit of the Spirit, we'd come to find that we, we can't produce fruit on our, on our own. Fruit comes when we abide in Jesus. But the thing is, you can't abide in Jesus without being a part of community. It's impossible. There is no self-study discipleship plan. You can't do discipleship by yourself. It has to be done in community. It was designed by God to be done this way. And why? Well, Jesus knew that there were certain dynamics of our life regarding spiritual growth that only happens when people live in community, when they live together, there are certain spiritual things that can only be discovered when we band together in commitment, in intimacy, in mission. And let's talk about uh, several of these dynamics because they're really important for our spiritual development and because it's going to help us know how to better live life together. And here's the first dynamic. Jesus is ever so present in his community. Jesus is right here. Jesus is right now. He's always present in every place and in every moment. But he's present in his community in a really special way. And that's why Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Matthew 18, verse 20. And here's a picture of what happens in community. Have you ever noticed that guys like fire? Boys like fire. It's, it's a state that lasts 50, 60, 70 years. I think old guys like fire, too. And do you ever notice what happens when you get a bunch of guys around a barbecue? You ever notice that we start piling a lot of charcoal together and then we like to douse it with a lot of lighter fluid. That's what we like to do. And then we like to light it. Now That's a fire. Right. And then we like to squirt more lighter fluid into it. And we like to see it grow bigger. And we like to design stuff. And um, that's just what we like to do. And did you guys notice a bunch of guys around the barbecue pit at the church picnic? Did anybody? Um, I'm not going to mention any names. Um, just Tim Williams and Dave Barda. And so they, we had all this lighter fluid. And the barbecue was pretty much done. 
And I just see them, they're laughing. <laughs> Big old fire. And I was waiting for a voice to come out of it, but it didn't. But after, after they exhausted gallons of lighter fluid, the fire subsides. And, and you notice that the briquettes that are, are close together, they're, they're glowing. They're glowing red-orange, and you can feel the heat from them. But what happens when one of those charcoal briquettes gets pulled away from the group? What happens to that charcoal? It loses its glow. It loses its heat. It ceases to function as what it was made for. There's something about how these little charcoal briquettes are made that when you put them together, they glow. There's a light to them. They get really hot. But when you pull one off to the side and it's on its own, it cools off really fast. It loses its glow. It loses its light and it loses its fire, its heat. It's no longer there. It can no longer fulfill the function that it was made for. But when they stick together, there's a glow, there's heat, there's light, there's fire, and they feed off of each other. God made them that way. And when they get isolated, they start to cool down. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, he writes, Personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his presence than scattered individuals. Take a moment to think about that statement. Personalities united, people in community, contain more of God and sustain the force of his presence much better and more successfully than scattered individuals. The writer of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are meant to live in community. And when we are together in Jesus, there, there is a glow. There is a light. There is a fire. There is a heat. And I think many of us here have experienced this. Moments when we experience God's comfort, his peace, his hope, his strength, his guidance in community. Moments when he speaks through me to others or when he speaks through you to others, when he speaks through you to me. And that's how community works. Jesus is in our midst. And that's one of the reasons why you'll notice when people want to move away from God, that one of the first things they do is they separate themselves from a spiritual communion, from a spiritual community. And we've seen that happen a lot. The second dynamic is a pretty humbling one. It kind of leads to this. Community prevents us from spiritually drifting. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, um, it's written that as iron sharpens iron. And every week I meet with a group of guys to discuss our lives with one another. And oftentimes it's something that is a struggle. And so what the group does is, is meet and ask how things are going the following week. And the group continues asking how things are going every week to follow up on whether the struggle was acted upon or what, what happened with it. So the members in the group have to decide to do something about their struggle. And we're going to keep asking each other questions and, and we need to keep asking each other questions. We need to, to have people challenge us in our prayer life to simply speak to God, asking questions about how, how we're living our life. And then asking each other for wise counsel. And community allows us to be confronted with the things in our lives. Otherwise, we start spiritually drifting away from God. No matter how smart, how clever, how tough any one of us thinks we are, none of us is above the need of, for community. Everyone is prone to spiritually drifting. 
But by staying in community, I am encouraged to living a good life, a life of good actions while being held accountable to good deeds. And the community secures me to what is most valuable to me. And I bring this up because there's this bad rumor floating about. And that rumor is that we can do spirituality on our own. That we can thrive outside of community and do this self-study spirituality plan. And that's false. That's impossible. Spirituality can't be done outside of community. That's not to say that there aren't important disciplines that are to be practiced to enhance spirituality, like solitude or silence or meditating on your own or self-study. But what good is spirituality if there are no benefits to others? If it's just you yourself in isolation doing things for yourself? What good is that? Isn't that just self-serving? When does that get poured out to somebody else? So we went to Kenya with a group of of people that most of them didn't have a relationship with Jesus. But most of the group did believe in a higher power. Very few of them were were true atheists where they did not believe in, in God at all. They didn't identify themselves to any particular community of faith, but to something they 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 define for themselves individually and a faith that works for them as individuals, but not in community. That's impossible. That is impossible. And I'm not saying that you can't find God outside of church. Jesus didn't say anything about going to church. He did call people into community. He asked people to go on a journey with him, to go on a trip with him, to learn together, to pray together, to grow together, to confront one another, to serve one another, to be on mission together. That's what community is all about. That's what he's calling us to do. If we are not in community, we'll be prone to spiritually drifting away. So we each have to ask ourselves if we are doing spirituality by ourselves. And also look to see if others are, are trying to do spirituality by themselves and not in community. We need to look out for one another. And that's a way to live life together. The third dynamic that only takes place in community centered on Jesus is that it's the only place where it's safe for us to take off our masks. We can stop hiding and faking things because we know that we are fully known and loved by God. Even if you don't say anything to God, He already knows what you're all about, right? And you're fully accepted. That's the beautiful thing about God, that that even if you're hiding all these things and He sees you, and, and no matter what you're hiding, He still loves you the way that you are. And in Genesis, men and Women were initially naked and not ashamed. And this was not um, kind of like a fashion statement back then. This is just the way that they were. So what it meant was that there was no hiding. There were no secrets. Everything was out in the open. Everything was known. There was full transparency and they were loved. They knew that. And then came the fall, which brought with it shame. It brought hiding. And Adam said to God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, so I hid. And the human race has been hiding from God and from each other ever since. And you know what? People in the church seem to be the best hiders of all. There's a story about a kid who comes running into the living room with a dead rat to show his mom. And the pastor of the church is in a meeting with his mom. But but he doesn't notice him because he's excited to tell his mom about this dead rat. He has this dead rat. So he starts telling his mom about 
um, how he was hanging out in the backyard when he noticed this rat just kind of roaming around. Then he proceeds to tell her what, what he did to the rat. He, he told her, Mom, I, uh, I saw this rat. He was just kind of walking around you know, looking for food or something. So I picked up a rock and I threw it at him and I hit him. It knocked him out. And so I picked up another rock and I, I threw it at him again because I wanted to make sure he wasn't faking it because I didn't want to get attacked. So, so I hit him again and then I, I got out of my crouching position and then I, I got to it and I kicked it and then I started stomping on it and then I, and I started jumping on it up and down and, and then I grabbed it by its tail and then I chucked it against the wall and I picked it up and I did it over and over again and then the boy suddenly becomes aware that the pastor is sitting there and the pastor is appalled and his jaw is dropped and his eyes are wide open and his hands are like clenching his hair. He can't believe that this kid has done this. So holding up the rat by the tail, the boy holds up the rat and he, and he shows the rat to the pastor with such sincere eyes and, and says with the utmost piety, the Lord called him home. And the funny thing is that people who call themselves Christians, sometimes they're the best ones at hiding. You know, I grew up in a Chinese Christian church and it was called Chinese Grace Church, so CGC. It's the uh, least amount of C's you'll ever hear of in a Chinese church. Um, you know, you think of Chinese churches and you'll know because there's going to be a lot of C's attached to them. So it'll be like Chinese Calvary Christian Community Church of Contra Costa County. Like <laughs> so you just have to look at the C's. Ah, Chinese church. And um, so it was actually a really good church for me growing up. And for the most part, people actually got to know each other. Every Sunday we fellowship together after the service and we had lunch together and uh, everyone... Um, kind of just hung out together after church. But every once in a while, um, some big thing would happen, like somebody's kid went to jail or a marriage that looked okay, but then a uh, divorce was filed or someone who was at the church for a really long time just suddenly stopped coming and didn't see them again. And people would wonder what whatever happened to them, but nobody really knew. And these were people that came to church week after week, sat in the same spot, looked like everything was fine. Talk about their kids' performance in school or vacation or a new restaurant or things that were really comfortable for them to discuss, things that were pretty much on the surface but not really deep heart issues. And they came every Sunday, week after week, year after year, but nobody really knew them to the extent of being real. And after some tragedy, then people would come to find out that on the inside something was tragic, that they were dying, or and sometimes no one knew how bad things really were. No one knew the fears of people. No one knew their dreams. No one knew what ensnared them and what they were addicted to. And that's not Jesus' plan for community. And I understand about hiding because sometimes I still do. I'm better than I was at being transparent um, now than I was before, but it's still something that I have to work on until I die because I tend to want to look better than I really am. I want people to think better of me than I really am. I, I want people to think that I'm smarter than I am, uh, to think that I'm stronger than I am, um, to think higher of me uh, than I should be really thought of. I need community. And James tells us in chapter 5, verse 16, confess your trespasses to one another. 
A long time ago, I was challenged by a mentor of mine to confess my sins to someone in our discipleship group. And so this discipleship group, there, was, there were 12 of us, and um, there was a, a guy that was mentoring all of us, and he challenged us to let someone in the group know all about you, like the real you, you know, like what tempted you, where, where you messed up. And so Ben was my roommate. Ben was uh, the guy, another guy in this group, and he was a guy I knew for over three years, and we had some deep conversations over the time we were roommates. So we started having these conversations where we'd tell everything there was to tell about one another, all the dark stuff, all the hidden stuff that uh, everyone else um, didn't know about us and that we felt most embarrassed about or most ashamed about. And no, I'm not going to tell you what those things are, so don't look so excited. But, um, but it was a really vulnerable time. And I remember that we would often confess our sins to one another without even looking at each other because there was a lot, of, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment in much of the stuff that we were talking about. And we would go on these walks and we would just kind of look on the ground or look around us and not really look at each other. But every once in a while, we'd, we'd look at each other and know that we were no longer alone, that we were no longer the only ones struggling with the things we thought were just our struggles. That someone else in the world had similar temptations and, and messed up just like I did. And it felt really good to, for someone to really accept me. Because it didn't change how he felt about me or it didn't change how I felt about him. It actually brought us closer together. To know the bad things about me and for me to know them about him. The things no one else knew about me before. No one. And yet he still cared for me. And I didn't totally trust him at first, but, but we did this a few times. And after a while, I wanted to just make things up to tell him because I was experiencing this unconditional love. Like, Ben, I, I killed 20 people with my bare hands. You know? um, he probably would have believed me on that one. But um, there's, there's a really significant truth about humanity. And that truth is that you can only be loved as deeply as you are really known. You can only be truly loved to the extent that you are truly known. And as long as there are things you don't know about me, you may say you love me, but inside, if, even if I'm, I'm really good at showing you how I want you to see me, something deep inside of me will tell me, um, Sure, that person loves you. Sure, sure they do. But if, but if they really knew the real me, what's deep inside of me, um, they probably wouldn't anymore. And you wouldn't love me if you knew the real me. See, I can only be loved as deeply as I am known. And I can only be fully loved if I'm fully known. That's why Jesus knows everything about you. God knows everything about you. That's real love. Because he still accepts you. He still loves you. He still cares for you. He knows everything about you, yet it's still extended to you. And you can't really say that about people. But God, he does. And Jesus wants to build a community like that. So he gives opportunity for that, for, for you to confess to one another, for you guys to be fully transparent with one another. And in the book of, book of Acts, Luke writes that people would continue daily with one accord. So meaning that they would all pack into their Honda and uh, no one accord speaks to the concept that they were gathered together, that their masks came off. Thank you. 
and they were real with one another. And this kind of community only happens when when people are committed. It, it takes time to build a relationship that is, is so transparent that can be so fully disclosed. It takes time to build the trust to fully disclose the real you. And you can't have an open and honest relationship without trust. It doesn't happen right away. It takes a consistent commitment to build community. And the last dynamic I want to share that only happens in community is that it's the place where we have an opportunity to love the way Jesus loved. Jesus gave his community, in this case, this small group of disciples, a command, a command he gave over and over again on his last night. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse 17, Jesus says, these things I command you that you love one another. It's about love. Back in John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one another or if you if you have loved for one another, see the, the integrity of Jesus mission rests on love. It's not about how intelligent you are, how creative you are, what you do for work, uh, what you own, how much education you have. It's about loving one another, building a community of love. Do you find it odd? Because I really do. That after three years of sitting under Jesus teaching, Jesus, the master teacher. That he still felt the need to give this command over and over again. Isn't that weird? That's strange to me. Think about like the epitome of a, of a professor that you were sitting under there uh, as an apprentice under them and you were learning from them and the most important message that they gave to you was love, why would he have to repeat it again at the end? Not once, but over and over. The reason is, is because they didn't get it. They didn't fully get it. Their community struggled with love, which tells us something today. You can expect our community regeneration to struggle with love. We will struggle with love. Our church, our small groups, our men's and women's groups, any type of community group, we will struggle with love. If a group of guys that was 12 large and Jesus was with them for three years straight couldn't get it, how can we possibly think that we will? We can expect that a loving community takes effort. And if you want a deeply loving community, you can guarantee that there will be problems. That that's how it gets deep. That's how that's how it gets rich. You can't have a richly intimate community without problems. You have to have them. A community of love, it takes work. Right. So so when you're thinking like, oh, you know, things are bad there. We got to take off or, you know, I, I just don't like it or whatever, or whatever reasons or this thing's bad or that thing's bad or whatever. It's just part of community. It's part of us getting closer together and running away from it doesn't make it. A community. I don't know what you call that. Henry Nowen writes. Community is the place where the person I least want to be there is always there. 
Jesus didn't work too hard on making sure he assembled a community that was that was compatible with each other. That was perfectly in sync, that they were synchronized together. Let's take a look at Luke chapter six, verse 15. This was Jesus community. There's a whole list of people in Luke six, but I just want to point out a couple of them to you in verse 15. Verse 15, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon called the zealot. Now, let's look at Simon, who was the zealot. I think some of you know who the zealots were and some of you don't. So let's let's do a quick review here. Simon was a zealot, right? And a zealot was an extremist. A zealot was an extremist who belonged to a nationalistic political party, and he was committed to overthrowing the Roman government. He was committed by any means possible to overthrow them, which included violence. It even included assassination. They despised the Romans. And Jesus chose someone like this to be part of his group. Some psycho guy that wanted to kill people and assassinate people. And Jesus was like, yeah, you. I pick you. And there were a group of people that the zealots hated even more. More than the Romans. And it was Jewish people. People, actually. It was, it was their own people. And, and you're like, what? How can they hate their own people? They hated their own people that were traitors. People that turned against their own people. People that conspired with the Romans. They hated them more. Who in there is one like that? Tax collector. Matthew. That's worse than inviting a Roman soldier into the group. He invites a tax collector into the group. Tax collectors like like Matthew, who are corrupt, who are cheating their own people for money. And a zealot like Simon hated Romans, hated traitors even more like the tax collector. He hated Matthew. And can you imagine the group dynamics in this group? Especially when they had to bunk with one another and Jesus was like, hey, check this out. Guys. Hey, Simon, you're rooming with Matthew. <laughs> and you're like. Right. And um, I think people just romanticize how the disciples lives really were. They were like, oh, let's hold hands, guys. Come on. And um, it was not like that. Right. They, they were very different people from very different walks of life. And let's take a look at um, several more disciples and how different they are. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little bit farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Do you notice any differences in the fishing operation there? Peter and Andrew are our fishermen as are James and John. But do you notice that James and John have hired servants? And do you notice that it's a sizable boat, don't you think, to fit the brothers, two of them, their fathers, Ebony, and hired servants, plural? And then Peter and Andrew are probably your usual fishermen, right? And, and they might even be 
fishing from the shore. They don't say anything about a boat or anything. They might be fishing from there. And all we do know is they're probably far from rich. Right. And while we're told here that James and John, they're pretty well off. And we know that Zebedee was a wealthy man. And, and if you go to Capernaum, even today, in, in the Sea of Galilee, it's one of my favorite spots in Israel. You'll see an inscription of Zebedee's name on one of the synagogue columns, which notes that he was a donor for that synagogue. Poor guys don't donate towards synagogues. He's a rich guy. These are rich kids. Silver spoons, probably. And you can't help fund buildings with your name on it if you're poor, right? These are well-off brothers whose dad had employees to, to help with a fishing operation. And these two sets of brothers come from very different financial backgrounds. And I'm sure you've heard of people even here who deal with envy and greed. People who struggle over who has what or who does what or who works where, who lives where, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus puts these very different people in a small community together. He puts these rich Brothers and these poorer brothers, and he puts them together. And they have a lot of problems with one another, as we'll see in Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on the left in your kingdom. And then jump to verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Even rich mom comes into the picture. Rich mom probably thinks like, yeah, we've been supporting the ministry, right? I'm going to work this thing with Jesus. I'm going to go schmooze him a little bit and make sure my sons are right next to him. Right. Probably normal for Zebedee to do that for his sons, normal for mom to do that for her sons as they have money and they're trying to buy their way towards things. All the while, Jesus is teaching about dying to yourself. To be a servant, but they were asking to be masters. See, this is not a community that, that gets it. Right. Well, eventually they do. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be here, but. Jesus had to continuously work with them all the time. And community is not easy. And I guarantee it will be difficult because people are difficult. And if you find that you're in a community that doesn't have its challenges, please let me know. Please let me know. I have many of these challenging types. And because I love you so much, I want to share them with you. And um, I will assign one of them to you free of charge. Actually, I will pay you to take one of them. And Jesus desires for us to grow into a perfect community. But that community will not be created by perfect people. It won't be created by people who get together and get along with each other naturally. That's not his point for community. His point for community is to love one another despite the differences, despite the things that challenge us from loving one another. The way Jesus made his community grow into one of love was that there were people in his community who had this relentless persistence towards love. 
They were empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue on in love after Jesus departed from them physically. And and the community just blew up from this little group and they changed the world. How did that happen? They eventually got it. They started loving people. They stopped fighting about who was going to sit on the right side and the left side. And we all have this hunger to be loved. Everyone out there has this hunger to be loved. And there is something I want to share uh, from a book called The Whisper Test. And it's based off of, I don't know if you guys remember this, but in, in elementary school, when the simple test, when the teacher is just standing off and you have to cover one ear and the teacher whispers something and you have to repeat it. And that's kind of how they test you, um, if how your hearing is. And so this story is written by Marianne Bird. I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others, a little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. What made Jesus so irresistible? What rocked his disciples' world that they would never be the same after meeting him? I think it was because he lovingly told people, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little boy, the woman at the well, the the prostitute, the the, the woman caught in adultery, um, the lepers, uh, everyone that he was healing, that I wish you were my little boy. I wish you were my little girl. I I choose you. I I wish you were mine. I, I choose you. And Jesus started a little community and his plan was to spread his whisper that he wanted you to be part of his family. That he wanted you to be part of his community. That he chooses you to be part of his family. How do we live life together? Imagine everyone who comes into our church and that we whisper to them that we choose them. And um, in in Taekwondo, uh, I have the kids picking teams uh, for for different competitions and stuff. And I, I never taught this to them. They did it on their own. So I, I usually pick the top students to be the team captains. And the team captains will choose the least likely to be chosen from the group. And and so that kid that didn't have any confidence, that was never probably picked to be on a school team first or anything, gets chosen first. And a big smile comes over their face and their confidence grows and they're so happy. See, everyone in our community wants to be wanted. And they're invited by us to be part of our family. I hope. I hope that we whisper that to people, that people know that that's what we desire, that we want them to be part of us. 
And what if we decided as a church family that each one of us won't let others hide? That no one is going to drift around and that no one is going to go through life alone. And what if our community faithfully prayed for God to give us a vision for those outside of our church family on how to whisper to people who didn't expect to be chosen or didn't expect to be wanted? Wouldn't that be awesome? One of the hardest parts is finding people who are willing to jumpstart a community to a more intimate level. So for those of you that are already doing this, that are already developing community, I I thank you. And I want to encourage you guys to keep doing it, to keep whispering to people that you choose them, that you want them, that you want them to be part of your family. And for those of you that are kind of not involved in that way, I just want to ask you to pray, not commit to anything else, but to pray, to pray about being committed to our community. To pray about how you fit in here and how you can be a whisperer. And it can look like starting a home group or even just attending one or to asking someone to mentor you or for you to mentor somebody. Something to where you get outside of just where you're at. That it's not just a Sunday thing or not just like a twice a week thing, but that it's your life. That people matter and that they need to be wanted and and. They need to be chosen. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every person in our church was intimately um, a part of our community? Not just go to church or doing things for your benefit. We're not talking about going to church. We're talking about building community where, where you're known. Where you're prayed for, where the things that you're going through are prayed for, that that you're loved, that when things happen, people can come around you and support you and encourage you and lift you up. How does this start? Pray. First, we pray. And then the second thing, which is harder for some people than others, you talk. Talk, right? You got to open your mouth and start talking. Begin building relationships and connecting with people beyond just church. And don't just sit there and, and wait till people leave and leave or just leave on your own. Talk to somebody. Get to know somebody. Ask, ask them how you can pray for them. Ask them about their life. Get to know them a little bit. And start connecting with people who you see are drifting. And if you're one of those that are drifting, you have to talk. Talk with someone about it. Pray with someone about it. And if you're already in community, pray about who God wants you to whisper to, who he wants you to choose. And looking back at a couple of the disciples, I wonder how often they look back at their community. When, when John was an old man imprisoned on the island of Patmos, I wonder how often he thought about the community that changed his life, that Jesus chose him, that Jesus said, follow me. And Jesus invited him to be part of his family. When Peter was crucified upside down, I wonder if he was thinking about how that community changed not only his life, but changed the world. And, and how Jesus whispered to him and said, follow me. And even though he did so many dimwit things, like denying him and all this kind of stuff, that Jesus still chose him. Wanted him to be part of his community. And we have the opportunity to change a life. To change the world. 
to build one another up by doing life together in a loving community. Let's pray. God, sometimes we wonder why we have to deal with the things we deal with, um, whether in our family or in our job situation, in church, uh, whatever it may be, and wondering why a certain person is here or why certain people aren't here. Um, but God, it's all part of your plan. It's all part of how we build community, how we get to an intimate level, how we get to a deep level of love. And we ask, God, that you would give us uh, a heart that is patient to learn these lessons. I, I ask, God, that you would give us a heart of love, as even the guys that you invested so many years of your life intensely investing your life into for three years, that they still didn't get it. And um, it's no surprise that we don't. And so, God, I ask that um, you would empower us to be whisperers of choosing people and inviting them into our community. And I also ask God for forgiveness when we have pushed people away, when we've, when we've shouted at them in anger, when we've um, not made them feel welcome. And Lord, I ask that you would change our hearts, that you would change the way that we do ministry so that it reflects who you are and your love for people. In Jesus' name, amen.